Welcome to the Real Estate Players Profile. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. If you're listening to this podcast, it must be a Friday. Why is that? Because every Friday I have a one-on-one conversation that I post with someone down here in the South Florida real estate world who can provide some fantastic insight for you, the listener. And what is the point of the podcast? It's basically to cut through all of the hype and help you, the listener, understand what's really kind of going on. Now, one uh, rule of engagement um, I do ask of all our guests. We ask for straight talk in salty language, i.e. cursing. It is acceptable because this is a real estate podcast, and everyone knows people in the real estate world, they don't have the cleanest mouths around. So all that being said, let me go ahead and introduce our guest this week. It's going to be Justin Napola. He's a partner in the law firm of Napola Yanta Attorneys at Law, located up in the Hollywood area or greater Fort Lauderdale. And um, uh, Justin's a real uh, interesting individual. He's actively involved in all sorts of um, organizations in and around South Florida. He takes a uh, lead role in the community type of stuff. But also, too, he's, we're going to talk title. Now, before you roll your eyes and you say, oh, my God, I don't want to waste an hour listening to some conversation about title, let me explain to you that things are changing, and title is ultimately one of the critical aspects of the real estate world in not only Florida, but as well as the United States. That's why a lot of you investors from overseas, that's why you come here, because you want that peace of mind, you want that recourse, you want that transparency. So that's what we're going to talk. We're going to talk title. Hopefully, we can make it very simple, and we are going to make it interesting, guaranteed. So with all of that being said, let me go ahead and introduce Justin. Justin, what's going on, man? Thank you so much for having me, Peter. I appreciate it, and I am honored to be your player of the week. This is very exciting. Oh, man, you know you're a player. Everybody tells you that. You're being <laughs> humble on me now. <laughs> no, this is great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yes, let's talk title. Let I promise we will make this as interesting as possible. Oh, hell yeah, hell yeah. And, um, Justin, we're probably going to get some uh, listeners who've never listened to podcasts um, before, so let me sort of tell them uh, what I got planned. So I want to spend an hour with you, and thank you for your time. First 20 minutes, I want to talk about you, um, you know, South Florida. I'm going to ask you to give me a restaurant or two, a recommendation. Now that uh, a lot of people are being vaccinated, they're going back out into the public after this God-forsaken uh, pandemic. And then the second 20 minutes, I want to talk about your law firm. I want to talk about kind of what you guys do and what exactly kind of title is and, and generalities, as well as some of the other services you offer, including estate planning. So anybody who might be coming here and uh, investing in Florida, whether you're coming from New York, California, you know, Tel Aviv or uh, Buenos Aires or, or Hong Kong, you know, there are steps that are necessary in order to not only protect yourself and your assets, but also to put yourself in a position where you don't get banged too much by Uncle Sam and tax man at the time that you're cashing in and, and making your profit. And then finally, the last 20 minutes, Justin, I'm going to ask you to pull out that crystal ball and give us some sort of idea of what you see coming down the pipe. You were obviously closing a lot of transactions for all these people who were buying and selling, so you're seeing trends. So you're sort of in the trenches, and I think you probably give us some pretty good insight. So how does that sound? Does that, that work for you? Sounds great. Let's do it. All right. Fantastic. Justin, my opening question is always the same. I ask everybody the same thing. How did you get to South Florida? Keeping in mind, most people come here for love. They come here for work or they're running from the law. So what's your story? <laughs> no, wow. You, you know, you are 100% right that that is the case. Um, I guess if those are your three choices, it was love. <laughs> but I was in the middle of high school and my parents had had it with the cold in New York. Um, so they decided we're moving to Florida. They didn't care when they said, you know what? It's the middle of your junior year of high school. We're ripping you out of everything, you know, and we're bringing you down to Florida. Um, don't recommend parents move to a new state when their children are in the middle of high school. It's not ideal, but sure. 
you know, 35 years later, um, I've gotten over that trauma <laughs> and, and I love it here. Um, but yes, you don't have this. I ended up, I came down here in the middle of high school, ended up going to the university of Miami and that was it. I was done. I loved South Florida. I wasn't going anywhere after that. Now, originally from where, what, what, what oh, part yeah. of the Northeast? From, from New York, from New York. Yep. From New Staten York. Island, New York. Staten Island, interesting. You know, yeah. you know what? I got a little hustle. I got a little hustle. Anybody who's listening to the podcast, if you ever want to visit New York and you don't want to drop the big dollars to go ahead and get some great views of Manhattan, the island, or the Statue of Liberty, you jump on the Staten Island ferry. It costs you, I think, it was absolutely or something like that. Something like yeah. back and forth round trip. You take your photographs, and this way you save fifty or sixty bucks for the trip. It, it is a lot. It's a lot cheaper than the uh, the tour tour boats that go around Manhattan for sure. Absolutely, no, I, that is a good little. Uh, little tourist uh, tip you're giving people there. I, I, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you, move, you moved down in your last two years of high school, and then from there you proceeded on to the University of Miami. What was that mm-hmm. experience like? Uh, you know, somebody coming from uh, New York City uh, used to go into, you know, going through the process up there. Next thing you know, you find yourself parachuting in. What, what, what part of uh, South Florida did your family move to when you, when you first got down here? So we moved to what is now Aventura, but at the time it was still – North Miami Beach. So I went to okay. North Miami Beach Senior High um, and then went down to the University of Miami. And this was the late 80s. This was the height of the Miami Vice days. So it was, yeah, going to college in Miami then was crazy. Um, I remember the, the early birth of South Beach at the time when uh, Madonna was down here and, yep. you know, Jose Canseco and Vanilla Ice and all of that. And, I remember the first clubs on South Beach that were shut down because they were too loud after midnight. And <laughs> it was just unbelievable. Um, it, was, it was a fun time to, uh, to be a kid down here for sure. You know, I, I remember uh, when Fort Lauderdale was still the spring break capital of South Florida before it moved up yeah. to Daytona and Panama City and those places. And yeah, it was yeah, great. Yeah. You, know, you know, there's nothing better than being a 17, 18-year-old going to the beach, having MTV, thousands, thousands of young kids running around. It was, it was amazing. It was a lot of fun. Nice. I can imagine. Yeah, but then all of a sudden, you know, you throw your family a curveball. So you go to the University of Miami where you get your degree, your undergrad, mm-hmm. and then you're going to go to law school, and you hightail it out to Southern California, and you end up in San Diego. What was that? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, that was, that was not the plan. I, I like to say, and it's no, and it is true. I really, I wanted to find an all male school in Alaska. I wanted zero distraction. I wanted to go to okay. school and come back and be done. And yes. somehow I screwed up as bad as possible and ended up on the beach in Southern California. And if you've ever been to San Diego, you know it's a beautiful city. It is yes. amazing. I loved every minute of it there. And the best part is I met my wife there. So. She was also from the East Coast, so she was happy to – She was, I won't say happy, but she was willing to move uh, back to the yeah. East Coast. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. San Diego still has a, a place in our heart, but um, this is definitely home now. I love it. It's good, great to hear. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you at the end of the podcast, I'm going to ask you about all this talk we hear, we're hearing about New Yorkers and Californians moving to South Florida as a result of the mm-hmm. pandemic. I'm going to ask you whether or not they stick around. So I don't want you to tell me right now. Okay. But, you know, this is one of the things people are kicking around. 
the idea that everyone picked up and they headed down this way, now that you're vaccinated, are you actually going to return back home? Because maybe there's more opportunities there. So that is something I'm going to ask you. And given the fact that you have experience in both places, you're probably going to be a perfect person. Now, now I, I do want to ask you, um, I want to get into some of the community work that you do, but I got you sure. know, something. I, I'm looking at your resume or I'm looking at LinkedIn, and I'd encourage everybody to go check um, uh, Chuck Justin out on LinkedIn. You used to own a, a, a beauty school? You got to tell me. About I did. What, what, I did. What, what, what Absolutely. Is well, okay. So I come back to Florida. I took the bar, got admitted back in 97. And I worked with some developers. I worked for a title insurance underwriter for a long time. Real estate was going great. Loved it. Around okay. 2006, 2007, 2008, as you may recall, the industry yeah. crashed. And I right. said, I need to find something else to do. Like, I don't know if this is going to come back or when. Um, mm-hmm. I always loved education. And so I looked into getting like a, one of those tutoring franchises, like a Huntington or a Kumon or one of those things. Sure. And as I was doing my research, I stumbled across a beauty school that was for sale. I said, this could be so much fun. You're teaching young, creative people. And yes. it's never going to go away. People always yeah. need haircuts. Well, right. most people always need haircuts. I know you've got – you're the exception, but most people always need haircuts. Like you, you, it, right. And it can't be outsourced. It can't be – you know, you can't lose it to technology. It's always something that will always be in need. So my wife and I just said, fuck it, let's do it. And we bought a nice. beauty school. Had never been in the beauty industry and never been in education before. Now, I have to – give all credit where credit is due. <laughs> My wife is looking at me now. So she, she's listening in. So she knows this is the truth. You know, there's that scene in, um, oh, shoot, in Field of Dreams where yeah. the, the, the old man crosses the line and he becomes a baseball player and he'd found mm-hmm. his, his goal in life, his place that he had to be. That was my wife. The minute she entered that place, her life had changed. It, this was where she was supposed to be. This was her industry, and she ran it perfectly. I mean, it was like, like she would run circles around people who had decades' worth of experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was an amazing experience. I still did my legal work the whole time that we had this school. She ran it during the day. I would come in at night. I would do legal work. I would do accounting work there. It was a wonderful experience. After we won a bunch of awards, built the school up, after about 10 years, we had kind of plateaued where it was either you had to go really big or get out. It has been 10 long years. We were ready to get out. We sold it. New people running it. They love it. We couldn't be happier now. But, yeah, it was a great, great experience. Yeah, we met some wonderful people, had a great time the whole time. Talk about a pivot, man. You you pivot a lot. You pivot a lot <laughs> in your life. I mean, coming from Staten Island, coming down here, going to San Diego, yep. opening up a beauty school when the market goes to hell. So that's uh, that's amazing. You know, wh- one thing you're actively involved with, and you know, again, I'm looking at your LinkedIn page. You mm-hmm. were so involved with so many community organizations. I'm just going to name off a, a, a few, and then if you could just sort of you know highlight or you provide sure. people just a little bit of a uh, little bit of in- input on that. So you're you're the past chairman of the Broward County Human Rights Board. You are right. a board member of Neighbors for Neighbors, which I'm going to ask you mm-hmm. about to sort of explain that. You're on you're on the board of Hands On Broward. 
You're also mm-hmm. um, on the charitable foundation. You're a charitable foundation trustee for the Realtor Association yep. of Greater Fort Lauderdale. How the hell do you have all this time to do all this? <laughs> and why do you do it? And why do you do it, more importantly? Well, I do it because I love giving back. I really do enjoy it. All the organizations that I'm involved with, really, they're all different, and I'm, I'm passionate about all of them. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, some require a lot less time and energy than others. So it kind of balances out. Um, some organizations, you know, there may be one board meeting a quarter. I, I can find time to do that. Others, you know, it's much more involved. Um, you know, there's fundraising, there's event planning, and there's just more to do. And that's fine. And I have actually gotten to the point where I've been asked to join other boards and my family won't let me. They're like, no, you're not taking any more on. That's it. Um, if you want, if you're taking another one on, you have to let some drop off. And so, so right now I'm kind of capped at how many I can do. Got it. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Interesting. And, you know, thank you for all uh, your community work. Cause uh, you know, Lord knows not everybody has the time or more importantly, the desire to do that. So you're, you're one of the unique ones. Now, now, Justin, I want to ask you, um, originally from New York, you grew up probably watching sports. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. But okay, so I, I went to the, I went to the university of Miami in, in the late eighties. So <laughs> I really, uh, I, I fine tuned my passion for sports then for sure. Okay. So, so, so here's a controversial question. When you were growing up in New York, you, you liked the New York Giants football team or you liked the New York Jets football team? I'm assuming you're going to say Giants, but who knows? No, no. You, look, I'm a child of, you know, I was born in 69. So I, I was a kid during, you know, the seventies, my formidable years where you were either a cowboy fan or a Steeler fan. So okay. I was a cowboy fan as a kid. They had the better cheerleaders. They had cheerleaders. So <laughs> even, even as a, a, a youngster, little Justin knew one team has cheerleaders, one team does not. We're going with that team. And so I was a Cowboys fan as a kid. Um, but then when I moved to South Florida, I, I adopted the Dolphins. and I, I've been a Dolphin fan ever since. Wow, that's good to hear. I figured you were going to say you're a Giants or Jets fan. If you would have said a Jets fan, I would say, how the hell do you get along with the Miami Dolphins fans? Because that's one of the biggest <laughs> rivalries that the uh, Miami Dolphins have. Exactly. <laughs> now, now so, um, you, you know how ex-smokers hate smoking, smoking more than anybody? As an, a former New Yorker, I hate New York teams more than anybody. <laughs> <laughs> now let, let me ask you the the uh, South Florida is, uh, is open effectively, um, you know, for people to come and kind of do their thing. That's one of the reasons so many people, I would argue, came down here during spring mm-hmm. break and most recently for Memorial Day, while other states are still on lockdown. Uh, you know, South Florida and the state of Florida have really sort of opened up. So because of that, we're starting to see a bunch of new restaurants, um, um, you know, begin. We're also seeing some of the old standbys, um, you know, start to get a second life, if you will. Any restaurant or two you might be able to suggest in South Florida for somebody listening to this podcast um, where maybe you can give them a tip or two. And, uh, you know, so when they're either visiting or if they live here, they can go check it out based on your recommendation. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, when I'm in Fort Lauderdale, there's a little taco place that just opened um, called Bodega. You know, it's just one of those little kind of it, nice. it's tiny, and it, there's only a few tables, but their tacos are fantastic. It's right across the street from the wharf. It's good drunk food, but it they, their food w- is phenomenal. Interesting. Um, okay. 
And then, you know, I live out west in the suburbs, and um, th- there's a few good places out here. It's not as much as over on the east side, but uh, there's a few. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Blue Ginger, uh, which is like an Asian place, a sushi and stuff like that, and it's very good. So that that's kind of a staple in my household for sure. Blue Ginger, all right. I'm going to definitely mm-hmm. put that on my list because I love Asian food. So uh, if you're saying oh, it's you good, go. it's, uh, it's it definitely is good. worth yeah. checking out. Nice. Absolutely. Nice. Justin, why don't we go ahead? We're going to take our first commercial break. On the other side of the break, I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about title. And more importantly, I want to talk to you about your firm and what you guys sort of do and help people sort of That's understand right. if they are coming to South Florida and they're looking to purchase real estate, uh, you know, what the process is. I mean, it's different sure. all around the world. Um, but mm-hmm. So it's always better to go in with eyes open and understand what the process is in case they've recently purchased or they're under contract or they're looking to purchase. So um, stay tuned on the other side of the break. Justin and I are going to talk about title as well as his firm. So we'll catch up soon. This is Peter Zalewski of the Condo Vultures podcast. Before I started doing these podcasts, I basically was in the business of being a licensed real estate broker, a contributing um, columnist for the Miami Herald as well as the Miami a real deal, but also expert witness work in consulting. So if you are looking for an expert witness or if you're looking for consulting services, a straight talk perspective as to what's going on in a particular marketplace, a building or th- what happened previously for whatever your situation is, whether you are a, an attorney, whether you are an institutional fund looking to invest, or whether you're a lender who's trying to come up with some sort of a strategy and approach uh, for your lending committee going forward, I just might be able to help you to get a hold of me. Please uh, reach out to Peter at condovultures.com. That's Peter at condovultures.com. Or give me a call to the office at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859. If you're enjoying the Condo Vultures podcast and you want more information, but this information in the written word as well as charts, why not sign up for the software of the Stress Market Intelligence Report? To do so, go to condovulturesrealty.com. Slightly below the main banner and logo, you will see a sign-up box. It's called the South Florida Distrust Market Intelligence Report. Sign up. Simply enter your email address, hit subscribe, and lo and behold, every week you'll be sent a newsletter giving you the latest updates on what's going on in the distrust market in South Florida. Welcome back. I'm Peter Zalewski. I'm having a conversation with Justin Napola. He is a partner, name partner, I should say, in the law firm of Napola Yonta Attorneys at Law located over there in the Hollywood area. Justin, where, where are you guys at exactly in Hollywood? Sure. We, the Hollywood office is in Presidential Circle, which is the big, huge glass building with the massive American flag that is right in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard. You can't miss it because it's in the middle of the road. There's a circle that goes around it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so effectively, anybody coming off 95, you go west. As you start going west, uh, you, you'll run into the circle. and you're you, you will run it. right into it. That's right. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay. So it's good to know. Um, now, I, let, let's start off sort of broadly, and, and let's, let's try to keep it simple. Um, mm-hmm. uh, our, our audience is going to go everywhere from Toronto down to Buenos Aires, from Tel Aviv to Sydney. So it's really kind of all around the world. Mm-hmm. Can you sort of in layman's terms kind of explain to the listener what exactly is title in the state of Florida and why it might be important? And then from there, we'll sort of, you know, we'll, we'll kind of drill down into it. And then from there, I want to talk about just maybe some of the processes and the services that, you know, a firm like yours or, or anyone that they might, they might visit is going to offer. Sure. Title insurance very, very basically ensures that the property you're buying 
is actually going to be yours. It ensures that the person who says they own it and is selling it to you are the actual owners and that the actual land and buildings or whatever's on it, that that's actually there, that there's no encumbrances, that there's no liens on the property anymore, that there's no problems. If there's ever a problem, title insurance will address those problems. Title insurance is the only insurance that you only pay for once. You buy it at the day of closing. You never have to get another policy again unless you, set, unless you refinance or if somebody buys it, they get their own policy. It's also the only insurance that actually insures the past. It insures that from the day you buy it, going back to, in Florida, we like to say until the Ponce de Leon times, that if there's ever been a problem there, that it will be addressed by the title insurance policy. Now, that title insurance policy, um, and I know you're, you're admitted to the to Florida bar, so therefore you have Correct. a license to practice law in the state of Florida. Are there really variations in title around the country? Like, for instance, if I go to New York or I go to California or I go anywhere else, is it going to be any different or is it more so like a process that might, might be a little bit different? But for the most part, it's all kind of the same because the title insurance companies are pretty much large conglomerates uh, who are the ones who are writing this insurance and, and effectively insuring the past. Correct. The title insurance underwriters are all national. And so the title insurance product, the actual policy is going to be pretty similar from state to state. There are a few states that may have their own little contingencies here and there. The process can vary greatly from state to state. Well, it can vary from even within the state. Um, there's uh, Some states are attorney-only states where only an attorney can do a closing and issue title policy. There are other states where it's attorneys and licensed title agents such as Florida. Then there's one or two states that actually the state itself um, actually issues the title policy, and it's not done by a, an attorney or a title agent, that the state actually issues the policy. So it really varies. The process varies, but the actual product itself, it's always going to cover the same things. It's gonna, they're going to do a title search. They're going to make sure there's no clouds on title, and um, it will ensure that your property is your property. Okay. Okay. And then to drill down a little bit into that. So, so you mentioned there's title, there's title companies, which uh, may mm -hmm. or may not have an attorney. And then there's law Correct. firms that basically will handle the attorney real simple. Um, I, how does somebody differentiate the two? I mean, does your name have to have a certain set of characters or initials afterwards to <laughs> designate it? So somebody who doesn't know and they're saying, okay, I want to get title and they don't know if it's, if it's an attorney or if it's someone else. How do they figure sure. it out, and, and, and what's sort of the difference in terms of quality, caliber, or anything else that you you know, you know might be able to share with them? Sure. I'll, I'll focus on Florida because that's the state I know best. Yes, please. Florida, okay. uh, an attorney, basically anybody who gets admitted to the Florida bar can do real estate. You know, law, unlike medicine, once you're admitted, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to have an area of specialty. Um, so if you decide to focus on real estate and issue and do title, any attorney can do that. You just have to be approved by a title insurance underwriter to issue their title policies. Florida also has what's known as licensed title agents. They are people who take a short course. It's usually about 40 hours, I believe, 
and then they take a test, and then they get their Florida title agent license. They then have to form a corporate title agency. Okay. That agency gets approved by an underwriter, and then they can issue title. That is all a title agent can do. They cannot review contracts. They cannot give any legal advice. They cannot create documents. Their sole job is to issue title. In Florida, we have a lot of attorney-owned title agencies. That, the reason attorneys do it is for marketing. The bar is very strict on what an attorney can and cannot do to market. Uh, title agents have a lot more flexibility. They can hire reps. They can solicit business. They can do a lot of things we as attorneys cannot do. So attorneys will start. There's also attorneys scare people. People think they're going to be extremely expensive. And so mm -hmm. they think, oh, I'd rather use a title company. It's going to be cheaper. They yeah. don't realize yeah. Florida has what's known as a promulgated rate, which means title insurance is always going to cost the same anywhere in the state. You buy a $500,000 house in Miami or a $500,000 condo in Pensacola, title insurance will be the exact same amount. Closing fees vary a little bit from, from location to location, but rarely more than $100. So that's, that's the reason attorneys will start a title company. It's just to market, and so people think, oh, I'd rather go there. It's going to be cheaper, even though it's not. Attorneys who own a title company can do those additional services, such as review contracts and give legal advice. So they have more. They can give more. They can provide more service for the right. same and amount then, of money. And and then just one question related to that: Can can someone who's gotten a license in Florida can they have a title company, assuming that they get some sort of title insurance company that's going to actually work with them? Um, can can they operate without having an attorney on staff or uh, you know a principal or somehow involved? Mm -hmm. can, they, can they basically just they, they uh, can you know wing it? They can if you have a a Florida title agent license, you can open a title company and you can operate and you can do closings and issue title policies. And I know some wonderful people who are very experienced and do a great job, but they are still limited on what they can do because they're not attorneys and they can't um, get into the unlicensed practice of law. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So that that's probably a good time to talk about how law and the title Come, comes together. So, so if somebody's looking to come here and buy a property mm -hmm. in in South Florida, and they go to a firm like yours, um, not only can you do the title work, which is the the real straightforward type of process for a, a, a set type of fee that's designated by the state, but then you can also do what you can do interpretation. You can make changes. I'm assuming to contracts to the title insurance. Can, can you give people just like an overview about what, what the extra firepower it comes with? having a law firm or an attorney associated with it rather than just someone who can't practice law. Sure. I'll give you a perfect example is I'm working with a couple right now that are purchasing a home for sale by owner. There's no realtors involved. So okay. they had nobody to write the contract. Oh, they didn't know what to do. So yeah. they can't go to a corporate title agency because they cannot do that. They come to me. I've, wrote up the contract exactly how they wanted it, sent it off to them, they sign it, send it back, and now they've got a legally binding contract and huh. they didn't 
they didn't have to go through a realtor, and they they didn't have they got everything they needed, and I'm including that contract in the closing fee as part of the services I provide. There was no extra fee because I'm going to be doing the closing. So that's one of the things. You've also got people who are, you know, in all, all different stages of life, you know, they may want to put the property in their trust. They may want to, you know, add their children to a deed later on or something like that. Um, there are a million different instances where we can help. I had another an older gentleman who's a veteran who called me yesterday. His mortgage lender had a great deal for veterans. He could save half a point on his interest. He was thrilled. The problem was he had put his um, significant other into a life estate on the deed, and they wouldn't Whoa. refinance. So that was something we were able to address for him. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a million different you know situations where we can just provide added value as attorneys. I see. I see. Now, now maybe some of the listeners who um, you know who who are enjoying our conversation, I hope. Maybe some of them have bought pre-construction, which basically mm-hmm. is they went ahead, they put money down um, on a project. The developer used that money to go ahead and build. The developer turned around and completed the project, and now the people either have to show up to the closing and, and actually purchase, complete the transaction, or they're getting ready to do so. And if they're doing that, they're probably going to run across the fact that there's typically a closing fee of about 2% of the purchase price. So I and I've always looked at that 2% is sort of for closing costs, but also junk fees associated with a developer mm-hmm. who's trying to pad his or her pocket. So, so can, can you explain to the audience, generally speaking, what they should anticipate um, when they're purchasing a property and then who's going to pay for it? Like, for instance, you know, a lot of times you hear realtors will charge you on both ends, you know, 6% mm-hmm. or somebody's going to pay 6%. There's typically a 1% for, you know, any kind of financing um, and then, you know, the example I gave you with the pre-construction was two points sure. or so. Um, uh, so can, can you give people like a rule of thumb just when they're sort of, you know, uh, navigating this interesting and complicated type of scenario? Well, first we'll start with the pre- the, um, the developer stuff and the pre-construction stuff. Yes. Everything goes out the window with them. They <laughs> use, no, it's true. I mean, it, it's completely different. They use their own contract. They don't use the typical far bar contract that most realtors use. They have, most of them have in-house attorneys and title people that do all their work. They often have in-house lenders who, the way it is structured, I I have reviewed so many contracts for people who are doing pre-construction and then they want me to do the closing and I can't because it just doesn't make economic sense. The way the the builder wraps everything together it, they often make it impossible for them to use anything. It'll cost them more money to use an independent attorney or title company than to use their pre, their people. But interesting, and that that's just developers. Now, for a traditional buy sell agreement um, that's not with a developer, where it's just two individual parties, it, it really varies from county to county. Who's going to pay what? Broward and Dade County are buyer pay counties. They're going to pay the title insurance. They're going to pay a majority of the closing fees. Um, Palm Beach, it's the other way. That's a seller pay county. And there the seller is going to pay a majority of the fees. It really, the rest of the state, it's kind of, you know, just it's a county by county situation. But that is purely 
but that's purely a tradition that can always be negotiated. You are not locked into that. Um, you do not have to do that, but that's just, it's traditional and people tend to do it that way, but it can always be negotiated by the parties. I see. I see. So, so if, if but, but if people are budgeting, what, what should they mm-hmm. think closing costs should be? Um, generally speaking and wrapping everything in there, is that like a point? Is there any kind of rule of thumb? Obviously, everything is negotiable, but is there, is there any kind of rule of thumb they can they can concentrate you know, on? I, w- I would say a point is probably pretty accurate. You know, it, it's a little it, it's a hard to say with certainty because a lot of times lenders will have fees that um, you know where people will buy down their interest rate or things like that. Um, yep. But yeah, it, but generally, you know, about a point is pretty safe. Um, Pretty safe uh, estimate there, but okay. like I said, it, okay. it can always vary for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everything is negotiable, obviously, and that's why I sort of brought up the developer aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Now, now, the, the the other thing, at least in my mind, um, that's really interesting about um, about title and about a closing is is that closing agent or the company that's handling the closing. They're bringing together a buyer and a seller. And maybe the mm-hmm. negotiations went well, and maybe they didn't. Um, so, you know, both parties are trusting the other ones. One party's given up the cash, the other one's given up the keys. And there's got to be a referee in the middle, if you will, like a boxing match or a tennis uh, match or, or something like that. Can you, can you sort of talk about, um, you know, just to, the, the, not the nuance, but the general structure so that both people feel like they're getting a fair shake and everything is going to be on the up and up. And, and that's one of the reasons why people like to buy real estate in the United States as well as in the state of Florida, because you do have that predictability. Could, could you just sort of uh, address that? No, you are a hundred percent right. Um, when I first got into title many years ago, uh, there was a book that was written that was popular in the industry at the time. I don't recall the name of it, but the gist of the book was that title insurance is what really differentiated the United States from most of the other countries, it really in, in what would have been the new world at the time, because people were, knew that they, the land that they were purchasing was going to be theirs and that they had true ownership interest and that it was protected. And that's really one of the reasons the author felt that the United States advanced as quickly as it did. As a closing agent, you're 100% correct. You're, you're trying to be the referee and make everybody happy. The downside is when you try to make everybody happy, <laughs> there's always somebody that everybody blames you if something doesn't happen on exactly. time or properly. Yeah. Um, you know, our job is really to just bring everybody together. And there's a lot of balls in the air. There's the lender, there's the appraiser, there's the surveyor, there's the inspector, um, the lien search, all of that has to be done. And you're counting on everybody else to all come in and kind of land the plane, dock the ship at the exact time that everybody wants. And that can be a challenge. Um, yeah. You know, currently lien search is a big problem right now. You're depending on municipalities that are slammed. You know, you're hoping to get a lien search from your city back in a reasonable time. But if they're understaffed, you're dealing with government workers who may not be super motivated, and um, you're just hoping they'll get it done. You know, a lot of cities in South Florida, back when they crashed, back during the um, real estate crash, they went to four-day work weeks. Well, now you're That's eliminating right. Friday. 
And you're now you're hoping to get information back from them in an even shorter window. That's so right. those are things we have to deal with all the time. And in a hot market like we're in in the United States, and especially Florida, time is of the essence. So some buyer Absolutely. will try to get a deal closed by saying, I'll close in two weeks and I'll go all cash and my money is hard. And therefore, mm-hmm. you know, if you have two left days, you know, within, within yeah. the window, I mean, shit, the, you know, the pressure's got to be on. It, it, it's 100%. Um, like you said, yeah, you want to close in two weeks. It, it's extremely difficult. Not because we can't do it, but yep. we're counting on, you know, getting the title search back. Well, mm-hmm. now that's you're dealing with an underwriter who has hundreds of agents they're servicing and thousands and thousands of requests that they have to get done. You know, you can beg and plead and hope that they can rush it, but there's, you know, only so much you can get done. And then, like I said, with this um, lean search, yes, you know, you really can't motivate a municipality to work any faster than they're going to work. They're going to get it done when they're going to get it done. And then God forbid there's a HOA or a condo association. Well, then you're really dealing on their timeline. Yeah. And you just have to hope, hope that you'll get it done in time. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're, we're coming up to the end of the second segment. And, you know, I want to ask you about your partner, Christy Yanta, but Mm -hmm. but, but why don't we do that in, in segment number three, when we talk sort of about, um, you know, how the industry is changing, how you guys have dealt with the pandemic, some of the things happening, you know, could you do a closing with zoom for instance? Um, I want to talk about that, but, but, but let, let me ask you one final question. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I asked early on. So, so lo and behold, if someone is coming here, I don't know, pick a, pick a place. They're they're you know, they're coming from Prague and they buy a property and uh, they get the title insurance um, and something is wrong or there's somebody pulling a scam. They went down to the courthouse or the, or the clerk of the court, they recorded something, and there's actually an issue where it gets jammed up, and now all of a sudden this person who's closing or this person who owns the property, they're notified that they got an issue or a cloud, I think is the term, kind of on the title. So so, so, what is the – is this when the title company uh, with the, who issued the title insurance, is this where they step in and they say, oh, 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 we're going to handle it from this point forward? Or, or, or what's the responsibility of the person who actually owns the property where there might be some sort of cloud on title? Just, just kind of layman's terms so people can kind of connect the dots. Sure. I hate to give you the attorney answer, but it depends. If okay. there was a cloud on the title that had not been discovered before the, the current owner purchased, mm-hmm. so yep. it would be covered by their title insurance policy, their underwriter would have to address it and fix it. If it's something that happened, you know, there was some sort of fraud um, while the current owner was the owner and now they discover it, then they would, that owner would have to address that problem themselves because it's, Uh. it happened after that policy was issued and it was basically, it's kind of on their watch. Now, if it's true fraud, it may not be extremely difficult to fix if they can prove it, but that's not always the case, but it can be addressed often, you know, with some sort of corrective procedure. If it happens after the closing, then the new owner's policy should hopefully cover it. But that's, yeah, it just, it depends. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of reminds me. um, I I have a friend, he's originally from Florida 
And his family had some land over there in like central Florida between Orlando and Tampa. And it was vacant land. It was undeveloped, whatever, Mm -hmm. sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. And all of a sudden he got notified. I forget what the reason was, but somebody had taken a deed, created a deed, a warranty deed, and went down to the Mm -hmm. courthouse, paid the fee, and and recorded it as if they were uh, him, and basically uh, were able to sell the property to someone else. And this person who legally owned it forever and ever and ever, he never actually sold it. And then it turned into this whole issue. In the end, sure. you know, the the system worked where mm-hmm. everything was fine. But there was those moments when, you know, he was sort of like, oh, shit, um, you know, yeah. how can this happen? By somebody going down to the courthouse, filing a document, which is obviously fraud, um, and trying to pull this type of hustle. Could, could you maybe just, you know, generally speaking, how often does something like that happen? And, and, and how good is the system to be able to ultimately, um, you know, uh, make sure uh, the rightful owner maintains their property in the end? There was a time when that was extremely common. Back, especially in South Florida. I mean, you know, we are sadly <laughs> the fraud capital of the world. And yes. if there was a way to commit fraud, Somebody in Miami was going to find a way to do it. Um, it. And so, yeah, back, you know, 20, 2008, we saw stuff like that all the time. Anything you could think of, absolutely, people were trying to do it. Um, Fortunately, yes, the system does seem to work a little better now. So that tends to be caught quicker. Um, but it still it still happens. Um, I still get alerts at least three times a week from my underwriters. You know, be on the lookout for this person, or you know, wow. If if you get a deal for this property, notify us immediately. Um, those yeah. things still do happen for sure. Wow, 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 wow. Well, in addition to hurricane insurance, it sounds like title insurance is probably the two best insurances you can get if you're going to own property. <laughs> absolutely, or absolutely, yes, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. All right, Justin, let, let, let's go ahead. We're going to take our second commercial break. On the other side of the break, I'm going to ask Justin to sort of talk about how title is evolving, what happened as a result of the pandemic. What about if you're sitting there in uh, Paris and you want to close on a property in Florida? Can you do it with Zoom? Because we're doing everything else with Zoom. We're seeing doctors, things like that. And I also want to talk about, um, you know, his partner, how he met uh, Chris Dianta and, uh, you know, what the two um, partners bring together. So stay tuned. We'll catch up with Justin on the other side of the break. After one-year hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we're bringing back the condo correction tours. I'm Peter Zalewski the host of this podcast. I'm also the one who will be leading these tours. These are three-hour tours where we go to a particular neighborhood. We walk the neighborhood. We talk about market conditions. We look and talk about buildings. We also talk about what's going on in those particular buildings. Everyone who attends the tour, uh, they're given a handout talking about that. what's the current state of that particular market from a buyer as well as a seller perspective. It's real heavy on the information in terms of the handout, but it's also really uh, interesting and insightful based on the stories behind the buildings and how they are performing. So I encourage you. If you're in the market for a condominium, if you're trying to work to get listings in a condominium, this is probably a tour that you want to uh, take. It's straight talk, much like our podcast, and chances are you're going to enjoy it. You're probably going to want to attend all of the tours going forward. To get a schedule of our upcoming tours, please go to condovultures.eventbrite.com. Again, condovultures.eventbrite.com. This is Peter Zalewski of the Condo Vultures Podcast. 
Back in 1995, I got my real estate license, but I didn't practice for a number of years simply because I was writing about real estate as a journalist. 2006, I broke out and I launched a company called Condo Vultures. The idea was to try to use information, uh, data, and know-how to try to get the best deals on behalf of buyers. So if you are a buyer and you're looking for a deal, you're looking to try to understand the condo market in the Tri-County, South Florida area, myself or my team are here to help you to get a hold of us. Please call us at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit our website, condovulturesrealty.com. Welcome back to the Real Estate Players Profile. I am your host, Peter Zaluski, having a very insightful and educational conversation with um, our real estate player this week, Justin Napola. He has a law firm. He's a named partner of Napola Yanta uh, Attorneys at Law, located in the Hollywood area which is basically located between Miami and Fort Lauderdale, if you're not necessarily aware of where Hollywood is. Now, now, um, Justin, you have a partner that you met uh, in at one of your previous um, uh, positions. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about Christy and, and how you two kind of came together and, and what you guys are sort of, uh, you know, trying to accomplish with your, um, with your law firm? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I am extremely blessed to have, Christy Yanta as my partner. Um, she is an amazing attorney and an even better person. Um, Christy and I worked at a title, a startup title insurance underwriter. Um, well, I guess it's been five years now. And we had met there and we became good friends. We enjoyed working together. Unfortunately, because it was a startup, they were trying to get their underwriter license and there was issues with the state. And they just never got their license. So they called us all into the office the week before Christmas and said, we haven't got our license. We don't know when we're getting our license. So we're shutting the division down. No. Yeah. It was, it was fine. Look, they, they gave us a very nice severance. I, it basically got to take a couple of weeks off. I can't complain. Christy and I went to lunch, you know, a week later. I'm like, I don't want to work for somebody again, do you? She's like, nope. So why don't we do our own thing? Sounds good. So we've been together ever since. Um, we're, I think we're a great team. I am the, I really prefer to focus on the business development. I like to get out. I like to meet people. I like to do the closings. I like to, you know, shake hands and kiss babies. She yep. hates that stuff. She hates ah. the, you know, she hates the 7 a.m. chamber breakfast and, you know, the, <laughs> The you know eight o'clock happy hours she can't stand it. She loves to be in the office processing the files. You know she likes the consistency of a nice nine to five job, and yep. so it works out great. Um, we're both knock on wood very happy. We like it, it. Just it's been a great partnership ever since. I'm sure. I'm sure. You you know we've we've made a reference to the term underwriter a couple times, and just gave, yeah. given the fact that that might be a word that's kind of um, you know it's it's known in the industry, but it might not necessarily sure. be known. You know, if somebody's listening somewhere, real simply, um, uh, what, what what is an underwriter? What's their role? Are they basically just a researcher and someone who verifies and says, "Yep, yep, that's correct," or "No, no, we got a problem here." What what does an underwriter do? Really, the, the as a very general overview, they're a big company that is putting up the money for the insurance. If there's a cloud on title, if there's a claim, they're the ones that are going to pay it. As part of the services that they provide, they do do the research um, for the 
for each closing, and they do a lot of those services. They do that kind of as a added value for what's known as agents, as um, attorneys or title agents. They do the research. We like it because we get then an extra level of protection. We know Got if it. there's a problem, they're going to cover it because basically they made the mistake. So that that's why 99% of all closing agents will use the underwriter. Um, it just it gives us that added level of uh, insurance. And it gives the uh, the individual, the purchaser, the added level of insurance knowing that, okay, they're the big company. They're the Fortune 500 company, multinational company. If there's a problem at my little, you know, $300,000 house, they can cover this easily. And they usually Got do. It. And that's the yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, right now we are experiencing a boom uh, that I've seen before, not for the same reasons, but in terms of everything is for sale. You know, 100 people showing up at an open house, 30 mm-hmm. offers over and above, no contingencies, no inspection, got to close it, all cash over and above, blah, 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 blah. Um, is this really going on in terms of from the deal flow you're seeing and all the titles, uh, title work that you're doing? Uh, is this being blown out of proportion by the media? How does this time compare, let's say, to, uh, you know, pre-pandemic? Um, what, uh, what, what's your take on the volume and the amount of activity that's currently uh, going on in South Florida real estate. The volume is de- okay. Pre-pandemic, we were booming with refinances. Okay. The rates were so low. It, basically, if you owned property for more than a year, you could save money if you refinance. So w- we were seeing a ton of that. Um, you spoke of the developers and the builders. Anybody who bought from a developer they were all refinancing because their taxes all went up in that first year because it was taxed based on a vacant land and not as a house. So they all wanted to refinance. We were doing a lot of that as well. That slowed down a little bit during the pandemic. The rates went up and dropped. They're still historically low, but, you know, everybody wants to get the lowest of the low. So if it goes up even half a point, people are like, oh, I can't do it now. I'll wait. Um, Yeah. The sales now are are the thing right now. Um, I hear complaints from realtors. There's just no inventory. They can't find anything for people. You do. You hear these stories of, you know, 30, 40 offers for a property um, at an open house. The difference this time versus the last big boom is there was, there is now equity that, the prices weren't crazy. Although yeah. that seems to be changing. I'm, I haven't seen it, but I'm hearing, you know, secondhand stories of people paying so much over appraised value that that's, that's concerning because that's what caused the bubble last time. I, I don't know if we'll see. I mean, I guess if you're paying cash, it doesn't really matter, but it, it's, yeah, it's definitely as crazy as people are saying. Okay. And, and how would this compare to um, prior to you opening up your um, uh, beauty, beauty um, school? Uh, <laughs> is it as busy um, uh, as you were back then? What's, or, what's your recollection? You know, I, I feel like it's, it's not as busy as it was then, but that mm-hmm. just may be, you know, age and memory going. 
Um, <laughs> you know, I, I remember, you know, in the early 2000s when, you know, people were taking, they were loading up buses of people to go to these new construction places, you know, and people were, it was like a party seeing how fast people could buy up these pre-construction things in the middle of nowhere. Um, yep. Everybody thought, you know, they were going to be the next um, real estate billionaire. And, you know, the, it just, the values weren't there. That was the problem. Now, at least people, I don't see that as much, which is encouraging for sure. You know, people are buying actual property and people are buying it for the most part to actually live there, which is different. Mm -hmm. It's not all investment. You know, I joke because I own the beauty school. I knew lots of hairdressers who owned multiple investment properties back in the early 2000s. It sounds like the movie, The Big Short. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which is wonderful. I, you know, that's I. I think real estate is a great investment. I wholeheartedly support it, encourage it. But somebody needs to live in this house, or you need to be able to sell it. It has to have value at some point to somebody. And just buying it as an investment, if you can't afford to maintain it and you know pay that mortgage, that's when they're going to foreclose. You know, it's um, yeah. it's definitely different this time. Yeah. No, no, interesting. And, and you know, and I would throw out to the listener, I'm going to ask you about the foreclosure, but I would throw out to the listener, you know, listen, a real simple way to know what a property is worth is what can I get in rent? So whatever that monthly rent mm-hmm. is, that should be yep. 1% of what your purchase price is. And I'll give you an example. I, I looked at a property, you know, it's a duplex. So it's two units and it's basically mm-hmm. throwing off about sixteen to $1,800 per unit. So let's just, you know, let, let's blend it. Let's say it's, let's say it's $3,500 uh, a month uh, being produced in rent. For two units. So to me, that says it's worth 350 grand. I mean, so, excuse mm-hmm. me, 250 grand. But they want 450 grand. So exactly. Like, how do you make the numbers make sense? So typically when you talk about investors, and I'm speaking to the listener, when you talk about investors, you're actually going in there with a strategy to actually make money. Um, when you talk about speculators, that's somebody paying 450 grand for a mm-hmm. place that's throwing off, you know, 3,200 or whatever the case may be. So, so, so basically 1% or so whatever your, whatever the rent is, that should be 1% of the purchase price. If you want to kind of have some wiggle room and be able to sleep at night. Now, if you want to speculate and pay a hell of a lot more because you love the building or you think it's going to go up, that's all on you. But that tends to lead to some of the issues that I want to talk about now, which are foreclosures. Now, now, Justin, I remember, um, and I want to ask you about the moratorium, but I remember last go around, people were buying properties, uh, let's call it the courthouse steps. So mm-hmm. before you used to actually show up at the, um, you know, where, where the hearings would be held or where the auctions would be held, where you could buy these foreclosures, uh, now it's all online. But one of the big issues is anybody who's listening and you want to buy foreclosures, one of the big issues is uh, you're going cash, effectively. You have to have money up, which can be mm-hmm. sacrificed if you, if you don't close. So what's critical is, is running title is what the saying. So, so you, you, know, you go to a firm or somebody, they run title for you. They give you an idea of what kind of liens might be outstanding. And now you know kind of what the ballpark, um, you know, what, what the process may be if you're going to go ahead and buy it, like what you have to clean up and deal with if you're going to go ahead and buy it uh, through the foreclosure process. Is, is there anything you might be able to offer to our listeners who maybe are, you know, screwing around online and they're thinking maybe I ought to just buy some of these places that are going to uh, foreclosure, given the fact that the, uh, you know, this moratorium on evictions as well as foreclosures has to end sometime soon. And, uh, and who knows how many people – 
you know, are going to run into all kinds of problems, uh, mostly caused by the pandemic. You really need to do your research. Um, and you mentioned that you want to run a title search, which is great. Uh, they have what's called a pencil search, which is a very, very basic search. It just kind of covers a short period of time just to give, you know, a prospective buyer an idea of what could be there. Um, it's kind of a quick, clean, um, quick and nasty search. The mm -hmm. problem is there's nobody to do those right now. Um, wow. It was a similar situation back, you know, kind of in the first um, bubble is the underwriters don't have time to do it. It's not cost effective for them to do the search because yeah. there's, you'll do 20 searches, but maybe one will actually result in a closing. So they don't want to do it. Um, Got it. Most attorneys don't want to do it because, again, it's a, you know, it's a lot of work for relatively little money. Um, you know, yep. the investor doesn't want to pay a ton of money because you're just looking real quick. Well, you know, I don't want to invest, you know, 200 bucks to see if I'm not going to buy this place, especially because they, they want to look at multiple properties. So, you know, mm -hmm. you're doing, you know, 10, 20 properties, it can, that money can add up pretty quick. So that's where it becomes a little bit of a challenge. You almost need to be able to do that research yourself and kind of go in and look and see. And that's the best way to do it. Or, you know, if you can find somebody who will do it, there are independent examiners, but there's not a lot of them. So it, it's it. a little bit of a challenge for sure. Okay. And then just, and then just one, uh, one question, follow up with that. And then I want to talk, I want to shift gears. Um, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of a foreclosure, how long does a foreclosure take in Florida? Just, you know, ballpark and, and, and at the end of the day, once a property is foreclosed upon uh, and somebody were to buy it either at an auction or from a bank, what kind of liabilities are they ultimately going to deal with? Can, can you just give some, you know, general sure. thoughts about it for the listener? If you're saying how, you know, a foreclosure from when the last mortgage payment was made till the actual sale, that's yes. probably going to be, you know, nine months to a year. It's going to take a long time. Um, okay. You know, most lenders work with the, the borrower for a while, try to get them. You know, they're not going to foreclose, you know, with one missed payment. Um, so it's going to take a few months for sure before they actually get around to foreclosing. Then once the foreclosure process is started, then it's going to take anywhere from three to six months after that to actually, you know, work its way through the legal system, depending on, you know, if it's delayed by attorneys or things like that. Um, okay. So, so I mean, yeah, you know, figure anywhere from six months to a year is generally how long it's going to take um, to get that done. And then the liability, yeah, you're, you're buying the property. Now you will get clear title because, the um, lender will own the property, um, yep. and then they are able to sell it to you. So that will – you will get the you know, title for the property from a foreclosure sale like that. The, the only problem is, you know, the, um, how well the owner maintained the property. There could be issues with the association sometimes that uh, may have not been addressed at the time. So, But for the most part, you're, you're getting – Pretty clean. You're getting you're getting clean title. 
and you shouldn't have a ton of liability. Got it. Got it. Got it. Now, now, now one way somebody who maybe owns a property and they took out, um, you know, and they financed it and maybe the market has changed on them and it doesn't seem to be the case yet. Um, but, mm-hmm. but some people basically become underwater, as they say, where the place is worth less um, mm-hmm. by market conditions rather than what the loan is. And in a situation like that, a seller can actually try to convince a bank to let them go on the loan by bringing in a buyer to sort of take over the property in something called a short sale. Um, Correct. Uh, J- Justin, what, what, what can you tell the listener about short sales? As I look through the multiple listing service, I am seeing a number of short sales start to pop up where, you know, a oh, very yeah. high price type of um, mm-hmm. you know, properties, very high price properties. Um, so, so generally speaking for the listener, how does a short sale work and uh, can you guys do it and 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 how long does it typically take you know ballpark sure um short sales are what kept uh real estate and title going in you know 2009 2010 in, in those years um that was the only thing the only property it was moving like you said it's when the borrower owes more on the property than it's worth. The, what they will then do is negotiate with the lender to mm-hmm. sell the property for less than what is owed. And the lender agrees to take the reduced amount and they will waive the balance of the loan. Years ago, this took a long time to get done. Lenders yeah, didn't yeah. know how to do it. They, they didn't have the infrastructure set up. It's much better now. Oh, it okay. gets done much – well, it, it's better today than it was in 2010. It, it's yeah. still a long, difficult process, but every lender at least has the infrastructure and knows the process and is familiar with it. Um, I'm very, it's very interesting that you're seeing short sales. I have not seen any lately – but it doesn't surprise me. I can see it coming down the road for sure. Um, the way short sales work is the borrower has to negotiate with the lender. They can do it themselves or an attorney can do it for them. This is okay. another one of those cases where a title agent is not supposed to do that. They they can possibly, it may be okay if they just act as the middleman and say, you know, he's offering X, they've countered with Y and done that. But even that can get into a gray area, so it's not encouraged. Um, But, yeah, um, short sales, if, you know, from a buyer's perspective, if you can get one, it's great. From a seller's perspective, it definitely gets them out of property, a property that they may no longer be able to afford. So it yep. definitely helps, and it keeps you know it keeps the system moving, which is good. The seller yeah, should yeah. also keep in mind there could be tax liability involved because if the lender is waiving a portion of that loan, you may have to pay tax on that. I would encourage them to speak to an accountant because there could be tax liability for sure when that happens. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, man, there's, there's someone, I'm going to have to have you back on another podcast, um, you know, and a uh, little, little bit down the road because I, I want to talk to you about some other stuff, but, but let's sort of, let, let, let me try to stay on point here because I have a reputation for going on and on and on. <laughs> no, it's all good. <laughs> so, 
All right. So, so what I want to ask you is, um, until I made my first public appearance at an event that you invited me to and hosted over at the Tower Club in downtown Fort Lauderdale with fantastic views, um, I had basically been doing everything by Zoom. And I, and I mm-hmm. hate Zoom. I hate getting on the video. I hate all that type of stuff. But um, how has Zoom and how has the pandemic changed your world? And can people do real estate closings um, via Zoom nowadays? Do they need to get on a plane and fly from, uh, you know, you name it, London to come over to Miami to close on a condo in South Beach? Or can they actually do it over Zoom? So, so g- g- give us an update. Um, do you need to be on the ground in the county where the property is located in order to do a closing? And if you don't, uh, you know, how exactly do you navigate that? Given sure. the fact we got a pandemic. You do not have to be down on the ground. There are ways around it. There is, well, it's been around for a long time, what's known as remote online notarization, where you would basically do a Zoom call, sign all the documents in front of a notary that could be thousands of miles away, and they will confirm that you're actually who you say you are. They'll check your ID. They'll do all of that and they'll notarize it online. The problem that we experienced is lenders and underwriters are very slow to change. So they're very apprehensive. You will see it occasionally where it'll be allowed. They'll be okay with the um, online notarization, but most are not comfortable with it. It's useful if the person is overseas. If somebody is overseas, in most cases, the only way they're going to be able to get documents notarized is if they go to the American consulate. That can be a problem. It was a problem during the pandemic where many were shut down um, for a long time. People weren't able to get to a consulate. I, there are places where you know, the consulate may have limited availability for whatever reason. I had one person, I don't remember the country it was, it was somewhere in South America. It was easier for them to fly to another country to go to another consulate just to get the signature signing done than it was to go to the consulate. So it does happen for sure. If you're in the United States, we have mobile notaries all over the country that people Mm -hmm. will go to you and do a live signature as long as you're comfortable with that. If the person is uncomfortable, if a lender will allow an online signature, it's great. If not, we try to work with them as best we can. Um, yep. Early in the pandemic, I had to do a signing for a couple who had just had a baby. They, you know, Anybody who's just had a baby, their first baby knows you're terrified of everything. Yep. They would not allow me anywhere near the house. I handed them a document. I stood on one side of the window. They stood on the other side, and they signed everything where I could watch them sign it. But then then they would slide me the documents um, out the door once they were done, and I was able to stamp and notarize everything. But um, we try to take as much precautions as we can, make people feel comfortable, because that's our job. And and what what, what has changed that will be – standing or longstanding going forward as a result of the pandemic related to, um, you know, title insurance and, and the closing process. Any Anything that's uh, starting to surface where, you know, the industry realized, oh, shit, this actually makes sense. We should have been doing this from the beginning. I had really hoped the um, online notarization would have 
taken off more than it did. Um, once the pandemic started, and I feel like everybody ran and got their online notarization license and thought this is going to be the next big thing. And yep. it's, and it just, it didn't take off the way I thought it would. Um, but at least there's some acceptance to it now, which is encouraging. So maybe slowly they'll uh, come around. Um, another interesting thing from the pandemic is the FAR bar, the Florida um, contract that most realtors use. Mm-hmm. They're adding in provisions now for a, pan- for a pandemic that really? if something happens, and, yeah, um, if you're not able to close, because that was a problem initially, um, you know, last March when everything shut down, well, if you were scheduled to close and the whole world is shut down, what do you oh. do? Oh. So um, they've decided to include that in the new contract that they're uh, writing. They're also including civil unrest, which is something we never, I never thought would be included in the contract. But if you live in an area where there's problems and you can't close, what do you do? Well, the new control contract will address that. So that's pretty interesting. And and, and I'm wondering about the pandemic. Um, uh, how do they determine if it's a pandemic? It's kind of like an act of God. I mean, there's an organization that is accepted by the Florida Bar, the uh, um, uh, contract, is that the one who needs needs to call it a pandemic? Mm-hmm. Does the governor have to do it? The president? Um, do, do, do you know? It's interesting. You know that I don't know, but the contract currently had what was known as force majeure clause, which is okay. actually an act of God. So that would cover things like hurricanes, where if you yeah. can't close because of some, you know an act of God, sure. they would allow you extend the time. There's been all sorts of debate for the last year and a half on whether or not those clauses covered the pandemic. Wow. So I think that's why they wanted to specifically put pandemics in the new contract so that it clarifies that, um, that, that it was covered. And if there was a pandemic that it would extend the contract and the buyer and seller wouldn't be in default if they weren't able to close due to no, you know, no fault of their own. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Now, um, Justin, I, I did a um, I did a podcast with um, uh, uh, a gentleman I've known for quite some time, and now he's an instructor. He's over in London, and it has to do with blockchain. And mm-hmm. everybody knows blockchain as a result of uh, you know cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and all this type of stuff. And basically, the takeaway of uh, blockchain, in my opinion, I'm a layman, I don't know anything. But basically, it's a transparent process so everybody can see the process, and it's undeniable, it's unquestionable, and it's effectively the law of the land for a particular, you know, a trading of Bitcoin or whatever the case may be. Um, during my conversation with this, uh, with, uh, with my friend who specializes in blockchains, he's like a scientist, if you will, um, uh, I asked him, could we see a day where title is actually done blockchain-wise, and therefore, would you actually even need title insurance because everything is, you know, it, it can only be done once and everybody can sort of see it. Um, anything going on in terms of your industry where they're talking about uh, blockchain and incorporating that modern technology into real estate, which for the most part has changed, but, you know, like we were just talking about, it changes very slowly. So so anything you could tell us about blockchain? Re- title insurance 
changes extremely slowly. There are people who are still not happy that we're using computers. They want to go back to the days where you would actually go to the courthouse and do a physical um, title search. So I don't know that blockchain is going to ju- – I, I agree with you that it, it definitely has potential, and um, I could see something like that happening. Uh, but as long as I've been in the industry – People have always talked about technology one day changing the industry and making it much simpler and more transparent and quicker. Yep. And it hasn't happened anytime soon. Doesn't mean it won't. You know, look, there's always a disruptor that can come along and change something immediately. But as of yet, I have not seen anything like that. I have heard the stories of the people purchasing, you know, property with crypto. It's definitely out there. I don't know if an underwriter would insure that um, transaction or not, but from their perspective, as long as they're getting paid in cash, I think they're happy. Um, But it's definitely the future. And for sure, it's going to come and hit every industry sooner or later. Man, there's there's so many questions I want to ask you. Maybe I can try to give you a rapid fire. Just a couple questions just to sort of give you an idea. Okay, so because I'm running up against the, you know, I'm already blown my time, which is what I always do. So, so <laughs> qu- question number one: um, Can I do a real estate transaction, actually change, get a get a deed, um, pay the money, and not actually record it with the government? Is there any reason to do that? Any reason um, why I shouldn't do that? Because you always hear about rush to the courthouse type of concept. Can, can you just give people a general idea of what that term means and, and what are the re- repercussions or repercussions, I should say, of it? Sure. You know, where Florida is a um, first in state where the first person to record, they get priority over everybody else. So you could do a closing or, or do a new deed and not record it. The problem is somebody else can come along behind you, do another deed, record it, and then you're out of luck. Um, so it, it you can do that. It's just wouldn't there would be really no value because you're losing any potential um, any a protection that you would have from recording it. So it'd be very dangerous. I, I wouldn't recommend it for sure. Got it, got it, got it. And, and effectively, I mean, the way I've always thought of it is once you record it, you're, it's kind of like notifying everybody publicly, hey, it's That's mine. That's correct. It's correct. Versus correct. If, you, yes. if, you don't, if you don't record it, you can still do the deal. It's kind of like a car. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a little bit more expensive than a car, but, but effectively, you know, you can do a, a, a car deal before you actually are recording it anywhere. So, okay, yeah, so I, I wanted to ask you about that. The other thing I want to ask you about, just uh, very quickly, not to make it too complicated, um, uh, and I'm bouncing around here, but, um, you know, back in 16, um, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, which is part of the Treasury mm-hmm. in the United States, they came out with an issue saying anybody who is buying real estate residential for a million dollars or more in Manhattan or in Miami-Dade County, and they weren't using financing, i.e. having a bank sort of check out who the ultimate buyer was because, you know, with, with, through the loan process, um, uh, they were going to ask, the, the, the government was going to ask, I guess the closing people to go ahead and figure out mm-hmm. who the ultimate end user was to try to deter money laundering. And we all know uh, about Correct. money laundering that, that amount has since been uh, dropped. And I don't know what the figure is. I think last I heard was 300 grand or something, uh, you know, when, when it's an all cash type of deal. 
Um, what can you tell us about that? Just generally speaking, and every situation is different, and there's probably attorneys that specialize that, and maybe you do. But what, what can you sort of tell us from a for you know for our foreign national uh, listener who maybe wants to do a cash deal? Are they going to run any any of these um, issues? I think it's referred to as FERPTA. Is that is that the right? Term? Right. Well, FERPTA is okay. FERPTA is the foreign investors, um, and and that's for the tax code, and, and that's a little different right. from FinCEN. FinCEN, got it. FinCEN, like you said, was set up to protect um, from money laundering, and you know any. I want to say, like, you know, you know, to protect you know against you know, terrorist organizations or organized crime or things like that, um, yeah. bringing money into the country when they shouldn't. When it first came in, and it was a million dollars, and it was you know. Basically, Manhattan and Dade County were the only two places in the country. <laughs> I, I didn't. Well, I understood why they picked those places, but I didn't understand such a narrow scope. You know, ha- having basically, you know, grown up in North North Dade, I could look over and see, you know, South Broward. The properties were just as nice and just as expensive. If you were to, you know, be up to something, you know, up to something nefarious. You could just easily cross the border into Broward, into Palm Beach, into any of these other counties right. and would have no problem. Right. They finally figured that out and said, oh, you know, maybe we should cover the entire state. and Maybe we should cover, you know, all of New York City. Um, we come up against it occasionally. It's just additional paperwork from our side. You know, if it is like a foreigner who is coming with a lot of cash. Um, it's not a huge problem. It's just like a, it's just more paperwork that has to be done. But um, I I don't know if the government has been successful in weeding out money laundering because of it. I hope so. I, I mean, hope it's working. But yep, I, I I honestly have no idea. Like I said, when they had such a narrow scope, it made no sense to me. At least they've finally expanded it, which is yes. good. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, okay. Um, uh, and then one of my two final questions. Um, there's been a lot of talk about it, and I foreshadowed this earlier. A lot of talk about people from New York and California all coming to Florida. Mm-hmm. They're all moving here because of the pandemic, and they're staying and they're not going back. You are somebody who is from New York City. You're somebody who uh, went to school in San Diego, and you're somebody who called South Florida home. What's the likelihood of these people who've landed here on the ground during the pandemic of them actually sticking around, given the fact that my experience has been, and I've been here since 93, when most people get here, the first year is rock star. They party like rock stars. They burn mm-hmm. their cash. Year two, they got to get a job and start to get serious. And year three, if they haven't moved away from South Beach or the party areas, chances are they're going to pack their shit and go back home because they're going to rehab or they're going to prison. So I'm wondering, <laughs> um, you know, are, do we know if these people are going to stick around or do we have to wait three years from now once they've actually been on the ground to see if they're actually here for good or whether or not they're going to go halfway back and maybe end up in North Carolina or somewhere else, like many people tend to do. What, uh, sure, what are you? Sure. You know, I, I think it's going to be a little of all three. I, th- I think some people will stay. I think the first South Florida summer is going to scare a lot of people away. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, when it's 90 degrees at 830 at night, people go, what the hell am I doing? This is crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, look, a lot of the people who moved from up north and from California, they have a lot of money. They could certainly afford to keep property here and, you know, spend their summers in the Hamptons like they used to, um, or keep one place up north, one place down here. You know, maybe we'll have a lot of snowbirds like we used to have in the past. That's certainly possible. Um, 
there'll be definitely, you know, technology has allowed people to work from anywhere. So we will see people who, you know, Wall Street people who don't have to be in New York, who can do their same job from here just as easily. Um, and then, yeah, you'll see people who go, why am I in South Florida and not in the mountains in the Carolinas where it's beautiful all year round? So I think you'll definitely see a lot of that, for sure. Look, I think technology allows people to work from anywhere. So it gives them that freedom to bounce around more than they had to in the past, in past generations, for sure. It it was interesting. Um, uh, Jamie Dimon, who runs J.P. Morgan, Mm -hmm. um, uh, was quoted in CNBC probably about a month ago or so saying he knows that they've actually lost business because while he had his people um, uh, working from home, the competition had the uh, people actually go into some of the clients and they were able to not steal, but sway business their way. So he was calling for last I heard uh, people at JP Morgan, at least an increasing number of them to get back in the office by September mm-hmm. or so. So, so you got to wonder, you know, that idea of working from home, whether or not it's going to be a permanent thing or whether or not it's partial, you know, two days, two days in the office, three days at home or whatever the case may be. But I got a feeling we're heading back towards a lot more people being in the office and, and that'll probably oh, have I, an impact I, as well. I, 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 I definitely think so. Um, I, I agree with you um, from that perspective. You know, it, if you care about your career and you work at a company like that, you yeah. want to have that face time with the boss and you want yeah. to be seen. I, I think you're going to see that again with um, the big law firms. If you want to move up the partner, they need to see you in the office working. You know, if you work for yourself, yeah, sure. You can work anywhere, but yeah. if you're on a career path, like, you know, and you're not an entrepreneur, you're going to need to put in that face time. You, you, look, it, it's, it's about, you know, who you know and who knows you. And if you're if they don't see you, you're not getting that promotion, most likely. Great point. Great point. Okay, Justin, last question. You are doing – you're handling a ton of closings. Um, real estate market is hot. Any kind of trends you can sort of tell us you've seen, whether people are using financing, they're not using financing, the appraisals are coming through, the appraisals are too low and people got to come out of pocket – any kind of general trends you might be able to sort of point out? And then can you give us some sort of expectation now that uh, we're coming up on 4th of July? President Biden said that, uh, you know, families and friends ought to be able to get together if they've been vaccinated and celebrate the symbolic, not the ending, but at least a, a turning point in the pandemic. So, uh, so so can you tell us trends that are occurring right now that we should watch for? And then maybe what you sort of see coming down the pike in this sort of, let's say, quasi post-pandemic era as we sort of go forward and, you know, and the rest of the world is able to get vaccinated and sort of deal with this, you know, this forsaken uh, pandemic. So what, um, what, what can you share with us? You know, if I look at my crystal ball and I am no uh, fortune teller, but, you know, I, I think the fact that right now, you know, cash is king and we're seeing tons of over asking offers. I, I mm-hmm. do think that will slow down. There's only so many people who have hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank that can purchase a home cash. You know, the average person has to take a a loan to purchase a house. That's normal. That's traditional. So I think we'll, you know, the cash um, buyers will start to slow down. I just, I don't think there's as many of them. You know, I, like you said, I think, you know, when we get towards July 4th, if people haven't moved out of New York and out of California yet, now that life is starting to get back to normal for them, I, I think mm-hmm. they're less inclined to move at this point. 
I certainly yep. think they're less inclined to move to South Florida in July and August. Um, <laughs> you know, the minute they get off the plane, they're going to be like, all right, we're staying for the weekend and then we're going back. Um, right. So I, I think we'll start to see some sort of normalcy for sure. Um, you know, I think you know, it's not that the um, housing market will slow down. I think that will still be hot, but I do think we'll start to see more um, – people taking financing out again, I think we'll see, you know, maybe you won't get 30 offers for a house and maybe you'll get three and that's much normaler. And and that's great. That's still three offers for a house is wonderful. Um, Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, that should be the case uh, for a little while now. You know, a lot of people kept working during the pandemic and didn't actually lose money. So they have a lot of bent, um, pent up extra money that they're ready to travel. They're ready to come to Miami and South Florida and visit. And that'll be good for our economy as well. So it's going to be exciting times for sure. And, and, um, uh, and as you do your closings, uh, you talk with the people doing the deal, is there any kind of concern? You know, how there's a lot of people are sort of concerned that uh, we have a very robust stock market. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, some people say might be a little bit frothy. Um, what, what, what's the sentiment you're hearing from the people doing the deals? Obviously, the deals are getting done, and they're getting done at high prices, so the, the buyers must be very confident. But what, what are the sellers sort of telling you? Are the sellers, um, you know, are they trying to get out because they're afraid, you know, we might have some sort of, um, you know, recalibration of prices? I am, I am not seeing that. The sellers that I'm seeing right now are, um, for the most part, people who are just like, you know what, Th- this is the best time to sell ever. I might as well cash out now and, um, you know, if I can afford to, you know, if I have to rent for a little while or if I'm moving out of town, I, I did a closing yesterday for a gentleman who is moving back to Michigan. So, you know what? I can get much more house up there than I can down here. And wow. this is as good as it's going to get. Um, he has family in Michigan, so it's, it, it's not like he just picked Michigan, you know, out of the blue. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But that that's definitely a good case, yeah, that I've been seeing lately. Well, well, Justin, on behalf of myself and the listener, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, if somebody wants to get a hold of you or if they're uh, interested in maybe hiring you to handle some of the services, what's the best way for them to, um, you know, to reach out to you and to get information, keeping in mind that the, the listener is all over the world? Sure, sure. The, in that case, the easiest thing is just to email me at jnapola, N-E-P, O-L-A, at Napola, N-E-P-O-L-A, Yonta, Y-O-N-T-A, dot com. You can also go to our website at NapolaYonta.com. Or I'm all over social media. I'm pretty easy to find as Mr. Napola. And I generally respond to that probably even quicker than my emails. Um, So, yeah, feel free to reach out to me. I'm always happy to help and answer any questions anybody has. And what about if somebody wants to what WhatsApp you? Um, uh, do you do you do that very often, or do you just stick to the I do. emails? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. You want to sh- you want to share the number that where they might be able to WhatsApp sure. you? Sure. Sure. Nine five four four one five six five two two. And one more time, please. Nine five four four one five six five two two. And they're welcome to WhatsApp me or text me or whatever they need. Fantastic. That's Justin Napola. He is a name partner in the firm of Napola Yanta. They're based over in Hollywood, which, again, is located right between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. 
The gentleman does a lot for the community. You can see he's actively involved. He's been on the ground here, and he's uh, pretty much a straight talker. I didn't hear too much cursing. I'm a little disappointed in that, but, you know, he's got an uh, awesome forum. <laughs> uh, I, I fucked up. I'm sorry. <laughs> there there we go. And um, you, the listener, I want to thank you for tuning in. Let me remind you, if you're not yet a subscriber to the podcast, please go ahead and do so wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what we're doing, leave us a rating and a comment. The more ratings and comments we get, the more likely we are to spread our message and move towards accomplishing our mission, which is bringing straight talk to an overhyped South Florida real estate market. And then finally, if you have any comments for me, send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. All the comments we receive, we discuss during our Reporters Roundtable podcast, which airs every Wednesday where I bring together current and former journalists, talk about some of the biggest headlines that are out there. So until we uh, meet again, well, I hope everybody gets inoculated. You all have a fantastic summer, and we'll catch up soon. Ciao, ciao. This is Peter Zaliski of the Condo Vultures podcast. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. And I wanted to alert you that if you have a property that you're looking to sell in the Tri-County, South Florida area, I would encourage you to reach out to Jenny Hortus, a licensed real estate broker with CVRRealty.com. She's my partner. She's been in the business for uh, north of 15 years. More importantly, she knows the market. She knows how to get a deal done. And she also realizes that it's more important to get a price that you can accept and sell the property rather than to hold firm on some price that's never going to be achieved and ultimately languish on the market. So if you're looking to do, do a deal that you want a skilled expert who can help you sell a property, reach out to Jenny Hortis at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit her website, cvrrealty.com. If you're listening to this podcast, think about who else it is. If you want to reach that crowd, which tends to be investors, buyers, developers, lenders, why not advertise on the Common Cultures podcast? To do so, give us a call at the office, 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com. I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com.